Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. I have been thinking about this passage of Scripture ever since we started Ephesians um, because I knew it was coming. It is a heavy section of Scripture. There's a lot of things in here. And it is something that, um, be honest, in my flesh, I would skip right over. It's like, let's just not deal with this stuff. Let's just skip over and get on to being filled with the Spirit or singing and making melody or those things. You know, let's, let's skip over this section. But we don't do that. We take God's Word as it comes and walk right through all of it. And so we're going to do that today. I would, um, well, let's just dive in rather than me give you a whole lot. Let's just dive in this morning. Again, Lord, we ask, and as I pray, I would encourage you to ask the Lord to do this as well. Lord, would you cause me today to be able to communicate only your words, but I pray for each one listening today that they would be hearers that hear your word exactly the way you speak it. That today our hearts would be prepared and we would prepare our hearts even now to hear your word as it's spoken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And by the way, who are saints? We are, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. You don't have to be canonized by the church. You are a saint right now if you are in Christ Jesus. You have been made a saint. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now before we go on in this passage, let's stop and break this down a little bit. Because there's six things that the apostle mentions. I'm going to put them into four, because I think the last three we can kind of combine together. But let's begin with the first one, back in verse 3, where it talks about sexual immorality. The word here is pornea. Okay, that's the Greek word. And uh, you may kind of, it may sound a little familiar. It's a root of our English word, pornography or pornographic. Um, And so it's used, and it is used for all types of sexual sin. Not just one type of sexual sin. It's used for all kinds of types in the Greek language. But it is my opinion, based on what I see and study, that in the New Testament, it refers primarily to one type of sexual sin. And I'm going to show you why I believe that. I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to show you biblically why I believe that. I believe that when you see this word here, sexual immorality, and it shows up a number of different places, it's pornea in the Greek, translated here, immorality, that it is referring primarily to sexual intimacy before marriage. All right? Adultery is the other word we have, and it's a different Greek word as well, which refers primarily to sexual intimacy after marriage with someone other than your spouse. But pornea, in some of your translations, you'll even find it in this passage and other passages that we look at, you'll see that it's translated fornication. Anybody see that word in your Bible? Maybe it says fornication. Yes. Um, Often, as a rule of thumb, not always true, but as a rule of thumb, if you're reading through your Bible and you see fornication and adultery mentioned, usually it's addressing sexual intimacy before marriage with fornication. Adultery is sexual intimacy with someone other than your spouse after marriage. All right? 
Now, let me show you why I believe that, so you don't just have to take my word for it. Um, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see the Apostle Paul, he's writing, actually, I'm sorry, let's go to chapter 7 first. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is verse 2 of chapter 7. This is the chapter where Paul talks about, I'd rather you stay single like I am. It would be better if everybody just stayed single because you could be focused on the Lord, but that's not everybody's gifting and, and all. So that's what he's talking about. That's the context of, of this chapter. Verse 2, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that's our Greek word again, pornea, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So clearly the context here, he's not talking about sex after you get married with someone else. He's clearly saying you desire to have sex, which by the way, we're going to talk about God's design for it, but let me say this right up front. Sex is not a dirty word, okay? It's not. It's a beautiful thing that God has created, and God's not ashamed of it. And neither should we. We should not be ashamed of it either. We should be careful not to abuse or misuse what God designed in a specific way. So as he talks about this, he says sexual immorality, so you don't do this, have your own wife, have your own husband. And so that's clearly talking about getting married. And so he's saying don't engage in sexual intimacy before you're married. That's clear. Um, if you think, if you're, if you're uncertain of how the Lord feels about this, you go back one chapter in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians in verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Don't play around with it. Don't think, because again, in our culture today, um, it is more and more rare to find someone who would say, yes, having sexual intimacy before marriage is not sin it's not a really big deal everybody does it and there'll even be those who will give you good reasons why you should do it I'm telling you biblically the Lord said I made you I know you I created sex I know how it's supposed to work and I'm telling you it's not my design now here's the thing even in our culture even often among lost people adultery is still usually frowned on because you made a commitment to someone and then you broke your commitment and so even among lost people, often that is frowned on. But sex before marriage, if you don't have a commitment to someone, you just sleep with anybody you want to. Again, that is not the biblical standard. Matter of fact, the biblical standard is flee premarital sex. Run away from it. It's the picture that you have in the Old Testament, the Old Testament story of Joseph. You remember Joseph? He's been sold into slavery into Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. So there's all kinds of different standards in Egypt than what he's used to growing up in his father's house. But he gets there and Potiphar's wife, he's, he's sold into slavery. He's bought by Potiphar's household who is high ranking officer and Pharaoh's in his cabinet. And here you have Potiphar's wife. And my guess is Potiphar's wife probably is an attractive woman. I mean, Potiphar, He's high-ranking. He can have the pick of who he wants to marry. He probably is married to someone that by worldly standards would be attractive. And she's put her eye on Joseph and said, you know what? Come lie with me. Come on, let's enjoy each other. I mean, and here's Joseph. He's a young man, probably late teens, early 20s. And again, God has made us sexual beings. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's also, and Joseph was very clear, there's a way that God wants me to fulfill that, and this is not it. Matter of fact, he says, how could I sin against God by doing this thing with you? 
And she comes after him day after day. And finally she grabs a hold of him one day and like she's going to afford, hey, we're going to do this. And she has power and authority. He's a slave. Scripture says he takes off running and she holds on to his coat, his outer garment. He leaves it and flees from her and takes off. Now he's going to get accused of something he didn't do and end up in prison. And you know the rest of the story. And if you don't, you can go read it later this afternoon. But that's the picture that we have here when it comes to premarital sex. Flee. Run away. Not because it's a bad thing. Not because it's an unpleasant thing. Not because it's an evil thing. Because it's a glorious thing that God has designed in a certain way and a certain purpose. And the enemy always, always wants to come and to kill and steal and destroy. Everything that God designed for something precious. Um, let me show you. It's not just in Paul. Because there is a movement in Christianity today to say that some of these standards that we have, if we can't listen to the Apostle Paul. So you show it to me somewhere other than the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know why we would say that, but that is a thought process. Matthew 15. So I'll take you to Jesus, all right? And we'll, we'll, we'll see what he has to say, all right? Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. It says, Jesus says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder. And he says it starts in the heart with thoughts. And these thoughts lead to actions. Murder, adultery. There's our other word. This is not pornea. This is... Sex with someone other than your spouse after marriage. Sexual immorality, that's our word, pornea. Theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile anyone. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they're getting on to them because they ate without washing their hands, and that was ceremonially unclean. That was a taboo. No, no, you can't do that. And Jesus says, you worry so much about washing your hands, which is, he's not saying don't wash your hands, okay? So children, kids, that this is not a reason not to wash your hands. He's just simply saying, you worry so much about the outward. What really defiles the heart isn't you eating with unwashed hands. It's what's going on in your thoughts inside. That's what defiles you. And he lists in there, notice two different categories. Pornea, sexual immorality, sex before marriage, and adultery, sex with someone other than your spouse. And so Jesus, he addresses this. It's not just the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus addresses it. Now, we see it in another way in John chapter 8, verse 41. You can just jot it down and look at it later. But John 8, 41, the Pharisees come after Jesus, and Jesus is talking to them, and he says, you know what you guys are doing? You're doing the same work your fathers did. And he's, do, he's not saying it in a positive way. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Same word. Why? Because they didn't believe in the virgin birth. If we were in their shoes, we probably wouldn't either. And so all of Jesus' life, this goes with him. Oh, he's Mary's son. Remember, she's the one who was engaged to Joseph, but she got pregnant before they were married. So who knows who his dad is? Jesus, again, you're seeing this picture here that this word pornea often in the New Testament is used to describe sex before marriage. All right? Now, before I go any further in this passage or talk about anything else, I want you to look at another passage with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. There are many in this room who have experienced the sin of sex before marriage. Me included. Many in this room. 
And so the enemy will come to you and he will say, you messed up. There's no hope for you. It's all over. Too bad. You broke the standard. You broke the rules. Yeah, you can still go to heaven, maybe. As a matter of fact, some passages we read, matter of fact, we're going to read some today that challenge when we begin to think, can I even go to heaven if I do this? You say, well, that's silly. When we read Ephesians 5 further on here and then here in 1 Corinthians, that question comes up and even is taught at times by people. If you engage in sexual sin, you can't even be part of the kingdom of heaven. Why would we think that? Well, look here. I'm going to show you that that actually is true. You can't be. But it's not just sexual sin. It's any sin. Verse 9. Or do you not know? Now, don't check out on me or call me a heretic. Let me finish my thought. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Period. End of statement. That is a true statement. It has always been a true statement. The unrighteous cannot, will not ever inherit the kingdom of God. God will not allow it. And so he sent his son to die in my place. And according to 2 Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians, but according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin, who was completely righteous, took on my sin and gave me his righteousness. So he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we through him might become the righteousness of God. I stand here today and forever as righteous as Jesus is. And nothing I have done or will do will ever change that. It can't. If it does, then my righteousness is based on me and what I do and not on what he did. This is grace, and it's why John Newton, when he saw it, said, it's amazing. This is amazing grace. So it is true. If you've committed sexual sin or any other sin, matter of fact, you didn't even have to commit it, just being born. You were born in sin. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. Not in that condition. Something had to be done, and it was through Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are righteous. You have received his righteousness. And when God sees you, you are never again unrighteous. You must see that. We know this. Look at the rest of the verse. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's our same word, pornea, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's a different word, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh-oh. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Before I go any further in this message, we, we settle this. If I am in Christ, I am no longer judged on what I have been or what I have done, but on who he is and what he did. Don't forget that, because the enemy will come, and he will attack you in that place. All right, back in Ephesians chapter 5. That's sexual immorality. The next thing he mentions is impurity or uncleanness. In verse 3. 
Paul uses this term six times in the New Testament, twice in Romans. He'll use it again over in 1 Corinthians. He'll use it in Galatians and Ephesians and then in Colossians, all right? This is, again, a broad term for all types of sexual sin. But part of what it includes, I wouldn't say that it's all that it includes. I don't think the scripture necessarily bears that out. But part of what that includes is what we would call homosexuality, homosexuality and lesbianism, all right? That's part of what it includes, and let me show you that. All right, Romans chapter one, verse 24. This same word, the same Greek word that is used in purity or in cleanness over in verse three is used in Romans chapter one, verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them up in their lust. And by the way, this, ver- well, let me just keep going. For the, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. There's that same word again, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And a couple verses later, he talks about this impurity and part of what it looks like. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That very clearly describes what we would know as homosexuality and lesbianism. All right? God says, my design has always been in sexual intimacy is man and woman. And to do that within this committed marriage relationship, that is my design, has been, always will be. And so there in Romans, we begin to get this picture. This is part of what Paul is laying out when he's talking about sexual sin, when he's talking about violating God's design, he's including in that not only sex before marriage, but he's saying homosexuality and lesbianism also fit into that. Now, I realize That's not our culture today. And my words that I just spoke in some circles are considered hate speech, and I certainly don't speak them in hate. As a matter of fact, I didn't write them. I don't have an opinion on them one way or the other other than the fact that Jesus and his word said, this is the way it is. God said, this is the way it is. This is my design. But in this day, to follow what he laid out for us, there will be reaction. And some of that reaction is deserved, brothers and sisters. It's deserved. Because we have treated people who have certain sexual sins that maybe we don't have as though they are second-class citizens, as though they are somehow more wicked than I am. They are not. That's gross. Why is that gross? Why is it that maybe in your mind, homosexuality or lesbianism is gross, but premarital sex isn't gross? Or lustful thinking about having sex with someone who's not your spouse, that's not gross? In God's eyes, it's all sin. I am loved, you are loved, and every person right now living in sexual sin is loved by God. He has a hope and a plan for them. And I want to communicate his love, not my flesh, to anyone, regardless of where they may be in this process. Let's keep going. We're going to run out of time. Um, He mentions next covetousness. 
It generally refers to greed for money, but it's really a, a much broader term than that. It, is, it means a strong, inordinate craving, an inability to be content or satisfied with the necessities of life and ministry. It's, I always want more. Now, in this context, it's used in connection with sexual sin. But it, again, is a broad word that can be used for all kinds of coveting, all kinds of greed, all kinds of desire. It's desire run amok. I believe that it has multiple applications. Part of that application in our day and age would be pornography, would be entertainment that is sensual and sexual, maybe even what they would call softcore porn, if there is such a thing. Anything that would stir within you and me desires that cannot righteously be fulfilled. And you say, well, it's just harmless thoughts. Thoughts are never harmless. Never harmless. Scripture clearly teaches that. As a man or woman thinks in their heart, so are they. We have a culture that is coarsening by the minute. It is getting more crude and rude, and to use an old English term, lascivious. just means standards are falling. Now, that doesn't mean we're more sinful now because quite honestly, there was a lot of this sin before. You just covered it up better. I've talked to enough people in my office to know that. This is not a new thing that just started in the last 10, 15, 20 years. But it is becoming more open and more blatant. Now, some of you would like me to give you a list of what you can watch and what you can't watch, what you should do and you shouldn't do, so that you, hey, because you're a rule follower and you'd like a list, and I'm not going to give you a list. All right? Because I would put on it things that I feel strongly about but I don't struggle with, and I'd leave the things I struggle with off of that list. That's, that's human nature. What I'm going to tell you today is that you don't need me to give you a list because you already have the Holy Spirit. And he's much better at creating lists. He's much better at pointing things out than I am. I'll give you a case in point. I like to laugh. I really do. Um, life is heavy. There's a lot of sorrow in it. There's a lot of, I mean, this world is broken. And I like to laugh. It's good to laugh. How many you like to laugh? All right? I find very little of comedy today funny. All right? But I still like to laugh. But I'm always on the lookout for funny comedy. Most of it is coarse and gross and all kinds of things and inappropriate in many ways. But um, in Lori's vehicle, we have satellite radio in there, and she got, she's always looking for a deal. And so we got one of these deals where you get satellite radio for like three years for 50 bucks or something. I mean, it was crazy. And so we, I gave it to her as a gift one year. And so when I'm in her vehicle, sometimes I'm listening to satellite radio, and there are some comedy channels on there. And I, I picked one that seemed to be cleaner than the most, than others. And, try, and they do little snippets of comedy, two, three-minute little things of comedy. And some of them, I just laugh. I mean, sometimes I'll get home and I just sit in the car and I laugh. They're funny to me. The funniest thing to me is when someone, a comedian, can look at normal things in life and see it in a way we never saw. It's like, oh, yeah. And then you just laugh hysterically because that's real life. You don't have to be gross and crude to be funny. 
So anyway, I'm laughing. But I also realized that in the midst of that, other things will get sprinkled in. And the other day I was sitting and listening to something. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not as funny. And then the Holy Spirit said, this is not just not funny. This violates who I am. This is crude. This is filthy. And again, it wasn't blatant. It wasn't blatantly obscene. It was more innuendo. innuendo. But the Holy Spirit said, Troy, you need to turn that off. It's like, well, can I turn it back on later? Yeah, you can turn it back on later. (laughs) It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not against laughing, all right? He's not against things that are funny. But he will show me. If I'm open, he'll say, that's not appropriate for you. You shouldn't watch or listen to that if I'll surrender to him. So I'm not going to tell you what you shouldn't do other than you need to ask the Holy Spirit. What I watch, what I listen to, does it fall into filthy, foolish, crude? Does it fall in those categories? Is it part of this covetous thing? And I already kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Filthy and flippant are really these last three. Let there be no filthiness. It says, um, where's that passage there in Ephesians 4? Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking which are out of place. He says, this shouldn't be part of your conversation as a believer. We're putting off. Remember the end of chapter 4? We're putting off and putting on because we're new creations. We're new creatures in Christ. The flesh still desires these things, though. And if anybody ever... T- I've shared this with you before, but I, I, I believe it to be true. If anybody ever tells you that sin is not pleasurable, they haven't tried the right sin. Because sin can be very pleasurable. Scripture says so for a season. But afterward, it destroys your life. Because that's what sin does. That's what it's intended to do. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to put one thing up and say, this is wonderful and you got to have it. Just like he did to Eve in the garden. God's keeping something from you because he's a mean God. If he were kind and generous and magnanimous like me, he'd let you have all of this. Because he knows once you have this, well, you're going to be like him. You're going to know what he knows, experience what he experiences. The exact opposite was true. That's what the enemy does. He lies to us. He's a liar from the beginning, the scripture says. The father of lies. But sin does have a certain pleasure for a season. Until it doesn't. And then it leaves you both guilty and ashamed, and yet at the same time, curiously wanting more. It's it's devious in how it works and operates. Sin kills everything it touches. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. An idolater, by the way, we've all been idolaters, in case you're wondering. That simply means I've replaced God's place in my life, his purpose, his role with anyone or anything at any time in my life. I'm getting my need met for anything by someone or something else other than God that he didn't intend. There are certain needs he wants us to meet for one another. But there are needs in our life that only God can meet. And if I try to fill that with someone or something else, it's an idol. So we've all been idolaters. Um, 
so that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, there's this passage like, Troy, this is strong language. We saw it in 1 Corinthians, we see it here again. You need to understand what he's saying. He's clearly saying that if you and I continue in this lifestyle, if we believe that it doesn't matter who I sleep with, it doesn't matter about sexual, my sexual purity, it doesn't matter about any of that, it doesn't matter what I look at, what I think about, it doesn't matter about these things, it doesn't matter how I live, it doesn't matter that I put off the old man and put on the new. What he's saying is that thought process is not It's not a picture of this new life in Christ. And more than likely, the Holy Spirit does not live in you. Doesn't live in me if I think this way, if I continue to live this way. It's one thing for me to stumble and fall. It's one thing for me to be deceived and enter into something. It's another thing for me to live my life continuously this way, thinking it's okay, it's no big deal. There is no evidence of the work of the Spirit in that. And in that case, I've never been born again. So yes, I don't inherit the kingdom of Christ. I can't. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness but now you're a light in the world. See, again, Paul's making this clear again. It doesn't mean that we once engaged in these things. All of us at one time have engaged in sin. We have been, we were born sinners. We've engaged in sin. Sometimes I still engage in sin, but now I am a righteous one who sometimes sins rather than an unrighteous one who can't help but sin. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to stop there. We can continue on this passage later. I want to go back to this one thought. Because this is heavy stuff. And if you're struggling right now, if you're caught in the bondage of sin right now, it's really heavy. And if you're born again, it's especially heavy. Because the Spirit of God in you says, this is true. And you're thinking... Okay, even if I acknowledge it's true, I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to quit. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to put off and put on. I don't know how to live differently. I want to share with you something I saw in this passage that I have never seen before. I mean, I've read scripture a lot, so a lot of things you like, I've seen that, or you see it a little different way. I had never seen this at all, period. It's like somebody added this to my Bible, because I never saw it before. Go back with me to verse... Four. I think it's, I think we can do that, Joy. If we can go back to verse four in chapter five here. The first part, let there no, be no filthiness, foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, okay. But instead, so here's the opposite. But instead, instead of all the sexual sin and crude joking and everything, let's put on more Bible reading or more prayer, more accountability partners, more seminars on how not to do this. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with any of those things. I think there's a biblical basis for all of those things, okay? But that's not what the scripture says. What does it say? Let there be thanksgiving. And you say, well, Troy, I think that's just referring to the language part here and not the stuff right before it. Well, if you think that, then look with me again at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, remember we were in verse 24, but if you back up just a few verses in Romans chapter 1, it's interesting 
because it, it says, let's see if I can find it here real quick. Oh, there it is. It's up there for you. For although they knew God, by the way, verse 20 says that God manifests himself in creation, so everybody sees him. Everybody is aware there is a God. He's not talking about they knew them in, salva- in saving faith. He's saying everybody recognized there is a God. He says, although they knew there was a God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. I'm here to tell you that what was revolutionary to me, and now I go back and look at my own Christian walk with the Lord and realize the truth of it, that this key element that's often missed in our struggle against the flesh and to walk in purity is thanksgiving, is giving of thanks. Praise and worship is often missing. I'll tell you what my Christian life looked like. And I shared with you, I, I was involved in sexual immorality as a teenager. All right, and then about 18 years of age, and I was, I was a Christian at five or six. Grew up in church, but again, it was all just information to me. It wasn't mine, it was somebody else's. And I, I believe, the best I understand, that I, I generally responded in faith to the Lord when I was five or six years old. And then I got in my teenage years and a lot of temptation and things coming my way, and I would pray again because I thought I wasn't saved, so I would pray again and again. I'd go through the sinner's prayer, and I, obviously it didn't take for me, so I got to do it again. That became a daily ritual for me to pray the sinner's prayer and get saved all over again. So I lost and gained my salvation thousands of times, all right, in my teenage years. That's terrible theology, but it was truth about how I was living. And so then I got to a point where I was just tired. It's like, I don't think this thing is real. And then it's like, well, you know what? It seems like that my, fo- my friends who don't really follow the Lord, they're having more fun. So, you know what? If this thing's real, I've said it enough. <laughs> Hopefully I got fire insurance. But let's just enjoy the things that the world has. And so I enter into that. The Lord, I was his. Even if I didn't know it, I was his. I didn't recognize even in those earlier years I was sinning, and the Holy Spirit in me was saying, this isn't what I have for you. But I didn't know how to interpret that. I just thought I was lost all over again. And so I get to be about 18 years of age, 17, 18. The Holy Spirit really begins to do a work in me and draw me in ways and open my eyes and reveal things. And I begin to cry and say, God, I want to follow you. I, I want to know you, I, I, I want, but I don't know what to do with all of this stuff. And, and so there was this surrender and crying out, and Lord, I confess all of this is, it's wrong, it's bad, it's sin. I agree with you. I don't know how to stop it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with the thoughts and the action and all of it. I don't know what to do. And so I began to look for things to do, and I would talk to people, you know, pastors and teachers and read books and listen to stuff. You know, what do I do? So, well, you need to memorize scripture. By the way, memorizing scripture is great. And they would quote Psalm 119. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a great verse. It's very true. I think we should hide God's word in our hearts. I'm not against it. And so they said, memorize Romans 6, 7, and 8. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, you know, and it just goes on and on. And so I memorized it. I quoted it so much, I'd start praying it. But I was still sinning and feeling worse by the moment. Well, you need an accountability partner. You need somebody who's going to come point a finger at you and say, hey, how you doing? How you walking? What's it like? Come on, tell me the truth. Fess up. 
So I had, I had multiple accountability partners. I said, I need more than one. I got to have lots. <laughs> Again, I believe these things are biblical. Please don't hear me saying in a, in a flippant way that I, I think they're biblical. I think they're good. But I still continue to struggle. And then sometimes I would feel good about myself because I would have a period of what I thought was success in overcoming temptation. So I felt pretty good about that. Pat myself on the back. Doing pretty good. Then I would fail, and then I'd feel horrible. I was lower than a snake's belly. Up and down. Up and down. Do you know what changed for me? Now, again, I'm not telling you I don't still struggle in some ways. I would not lie to you that way. I do not struggle now in any way like I used to struggle because of one thing that changed, a revelation of grace. A revelation of grace changed my life because I for so long believed I had to change me. I had to do this. And do you know what grace began to produce in me? And I wasn't even aware of it until I read the passage in Ephesians. It began to produce gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. And I began to just praise the Lord. So here is my encouragement to you today, wherever you are in this journey. If you have an accountability partner, great. Nothing against it. You memorize the scripture, great. Keep on memorizing scripture. It's good for you. All right? You're reading other books and I give you other ideas and tools. Fine, that's awesome. You want to pray against and pray some deliverance and principalities and strongholds? I've done that too. That's great. That's powerful as well. I'm not against any of those things. But I believe it starts at the wrong place. If we don't begin at a place where we take our eyes off of our sin and put them on our Savior, I think we're always going to be fighting with one hand tied behind our back. So take your eyes off of you and what you can or can't do and look at your Savior because there's nothing he can't do. And so I keep coming back to him. And so, Lord, I come to you. I look to you. I praise you. I thank you. Lord, I even thank you for the struggle because it reminds me regularly that I'm nothing and I can do nothing without you. This is what grace does. So if you come up to me and say, Troy, I can't believe that you were involved in that kind of stuff, and I I think less of you. You can't think less of me than I already think of myself. So it won't hurt me at all. I already know what I am. I already know I can't do it. I already know that if you knew me the way I know me, you wouldn't stay in here. You'd leave. You'd say, I can't believe that guy. I already know that. And Jesus loved me anyway. I will tell you this, in that journey that the Lord came along and and began to do a work, and he said, you know, I can redeem, we sang it today, I can buy back, I can give beauty for ashes, because I thought, you know, I had messed it up, and I've shared with you before, part of my bachelor to the rapture story, I was never going to get married. Part of the reason, and I didn't even understand this until years later, but part of the reason I did that, one, because people I admired told me that's what you're supposed to do to be godly. All right, that's one of the reasons, okay? But another reason that I believe that is that no godly woman would want me. So why go through that hurt? Why go through that? So when God brings a godly woman into my life, I'm thinking if she knows about me, she won't want me. But you know what God had done between 
that period of time in my life and when Lori came into my life, nearly 10 years had passed. I was saying, you know what? Lord, I'm all yours. I'm focused on you, nothing else. I'm not even going to get married. Keep them women away, all right? They're, they're Satan's trick. Keep them away. They are not, all right? They are not. That was Troy in his immature state, all right? And when God woke me up, because that's what he'll do, folks. By the way, if you're not married yet, just go to sleep to all this and say, Lord, I'm married to you until you wake me up. And when you wake me up, I'll be ready. That's what he did. He put Adam to sleep and woke her up and said, there she is. And he, and I quote, said, whoa, man. That's what he said. That's the way it happens right there. All right. It's not exactly like that in script, but you know, you get the idea. All right. He redeems. He gives beauty for ashes. He restores the years of the locusts of Eden. He gives you something more glorious than you could imagine. And by the way, he does this whether you're married or single. Because with him, they're both glorious. No matter where you've been or what you've done. I want to read you something in closing. Lori, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come because I'm way over. All right? Um, I want to read you something in closing. This is, a, this is from, um, I can find it in here, my stuff. This is from John Piper. And when I read it, I thought, this is so good. I had to read it to you. This is this whole idea of thanksgiving. If fornication and impurity are driven by covetousness, and covetousness is a deep, discontented craving that dominates your life and even leads you to go against the will of God, then it is clear that the opposite experience would be thanksgiving. If you're overflowing with thanksgiving to God, then you are not dominated and driven by discontentment at what you have been denied. Gratitude is what you feel when you believe God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you believe that he gives you only what is good for you and withholds no good thing, whether you're single or married. It's what you feel when you trust him, that the tragedies of your life are not evidences of his meanness or his incompetence, but rather they are the loving guidance of a father who values your holiness above your fleeting worldly pleasure. That's why verse 20 goes so far. That's in Ephesians 5. We will get there later. Verse 20 goes so far as to say, always and for everything give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. So you can see how thanksgiving is the alternative to a life driven by cravings for what you don't have, whether sex or money. Thanksgiving says, in God I have all that is good for me, and I will not be driven to dishonor the worth of his name just to get a few sexual sensations or a few more toys. Oh, that we would believe today that we have everything in him, everything we need. He's withholding no good thing from us. Lord Jesus, help your people today to believe that. Help them. Help us. Help me. 
to believe that. And Lord, in the areas where the enemy tempts and where we struggle, cause us to give thanks to you, to put our eyes on you, to see our Savior more than our sin, to see your power and not our weakness, to see your love more than our shame, to see your forgiveness rather than guilt, to see your arms wide open saying, I love you. I've always loved you. I know everything about you and I love you anyway. And then as we are thanking you, Lord, we're believing that you're transforming us. We are becoming more like the one we're beholding because that's what you said would happen. Beholding really is becoming. So, Lord, we believe that. We want to live it, experience it, and then demonstrate it to everyone around us that we would never again put shame or guilt or condemnation on anyone regardless of their sin, but we would show them the Savior. That we could honestly say, you know what, he doesn't approve of it in my life or in your life, but he's got another way. He's got another way. Lord, help us be able to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand. They're going to lead us and just some worship to the Lord as we close. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to go ahead. When we finish in a moment, if we can pray with you about anything in your life, that's what we're here for. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being good listeners today.